Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. A few weeks ago, the town of Moore, Oklahoma, was devastated by a massive tornado. 24 people were killed. Just last week, another tornado struck near Oklahoma City, and the fatality count is now at 18. Tornadoes are more common in the central part of the United States than anywhere else on Earth. And tornado warning systems can anticipate over 75% of tornadoes, but that's still not enough. Scientists are still trying to improve their understanding of tornadoes in order to make people who are vulnerable to them safer. And the study of tornadoes involves a lot of physics. Today on the podcast, we're talking about how tornadoes form and how scientists try to gather information about these natural wonders. That's today on the Physics Central podcast. Tornadoes are technically nothing but air. They are rapidly rotating columns of air associated with thunderstorms. But tornadoes demonstrate the power that air can have under the right circumstances. The severity of tornadoes are ranked using the enhanced Fujita scale, which gives them a number, 1 through 5, based on their strength and the damage they cause. The tornado that devastated Moore, Oklahoma on May 20th was an EF-5. Wind speeds were estimated at over 300 miles per hour. Thunderstorms are not unique to the central part of the United States, so what is it about this location that makes tornadoes possible? Well, to find out, I asked an expert. I'm Harold Brooks. I'm a research meteorologist at NOAA's National Severe Storms Laboratory in Norman, Oklahoma. I do research on a variety of areas, particularly on the, the, the where and when and why of severe thunderstorms and tornadoes and on how we can evaluate weather forecasts. Uh, and also, I do a lot of work on uh, on social science aspects of, of weather. So uh, why do people respond? Why don't they respond? How can we uh, improve response? Uh, how can we make the, the forecast process better? So the first question is, how do tornadoes form? When we think about any kind of a weather event, it's helpful to think of the ingredients that it requires for that event to occur. For a tornado, what we first want to think about is our thunderstorms. A, a thunderstorm is essentially a prerequisite for getting a tornado. And to get a thunderstorm, we want to have lots of warm, moist air near the ground, and then above that, relatively cold, dry air. The American Plains are in the perfect position to make these conditions happen. To the west of the plains, you have the Rocky Mountains. Air fronts pass over the top of the mountains, where they become cool and dry. From the east, you have air coming in from the Gulf of Mexico. That's hot and humid and low to the ground. So when air fronts coming from the west and the east meet in the middle, they are at different altitudes, moving at different speeds, and in different directions. So there's a conflict between these two layers. They're pushing and dragging on each other in different directions. And when you have this kind of conflict between air layers, the air can start rotating. So we now have a thunderstorm that's rotating. Uh, and if you were riding along with that thunderstorm, the fact that the thunderstorm is rotating means that some of the rain that it produces will get wrapped around back behind you to your right side. 
and and it will it will fall there, and in in that in that part of the storm, as it falls, some of that water uh, associated with the rain will evaporate, and that will cool the air around it. So that little that small region will start to fall even faster. The cool air falls faster because it is more dense. Low-density air falls like a feather, very slowly, because it is experiencing a lot of drag from the air around it. High-density air experiences less drag, so it falls faster. So once again, we have a situation where different layers of air are moving at different speeds right next to each other. And that leads to more rotation. So as this column of cold, dense air is falling, it also starts to rotate. And with enough rotation, you get a spinning column of air that may become a tornado. It's a pretty complicated physical process and one that's actually hard to observe well simply because to get really good measurements there, you have to be collecting data in a place where the air is coming, is rapidly approaching the ground, uh, but there may be large hail in it. And so it's really difficult to put any instruments in there. So a lot of what we know about this, we understand from making computer models that mimic the process that we see in the atmosphere. So as you can see, scientists understand quite a bit about how tornadoes form. And with that information, they can actually look for the makings of a tornado as early as a week before it might appear. Brooks reports that over 75% of tornadoes are predicted by weather forecasters, and over 95% of very strong tornadoes are predicted. But there's also a very high number of false alarms, times when the tornado warnings go off but no tornado appears. And this is partly because meteorologists want to err on the side of caution. The trade-off between false alarms and and misdetections at this point mean that we are we kind of are condemned to have a relatively high false alarm rate. As evidence of this, Brooks notes that in the 1980s, meteorologists were successfully predicting only about 25% of tornadoes, compared to 75% now. But the false alarm rate was the same as it is today. The easiest way to improve both, so make higher probability detection and lower false alarm rate, is just to start to understand the process a whole lot better. Uh, we assume, in some sense, we have to get smarter or we have to get better technology to help us look at the, at the storm. Uh, but the, it's, a, it, it's not an easy thing to do. Okay, so what specifically do scientists still want to know about tornadoes that could help them make better predictions? Uh, well, one of the things that, that we'd really like to know about tornadoes is we'd like to know what makes them the intensity that they are. Uh, We've got some sort of general understanding that tornadoes are more likely to be strong in certain kinds of environmental conditions than in other kinds of environmental conditions. But we'd like to be able to, to narrow that down a whole lot more. We also don't know all the details about you know, what happens in the last few minutes before the tornado forms or doesn't form. Uh, that can improve the, the accuracy of the warning messages. And at the other end of the tornado, uh, when's the tornado going to end? Uh, when, when will the tornado uh, when will the tornado dissipate? Uh, if, if we could if we understand that process better, we could essentially end warnings more appropriately. 
we could tell people, okay, by the time the storm gets to you, there won't be a tornado with it. But gathering data about tornadoes is a huge challenge. How do you gather information about an event that never happens in the same place, lasts for sometimes only a few minutes, and that involves flying debris that can easily take out your instrumentation? These storms are also extremely dangerous for human beings. In the storm that hit Oklahoma last Friday, three people were killed while trying to observe the storm up close. Two of them were veteran storm chasers. No one knows exactly what went wrong for those men, but their deaths demonstrate that no one can predict how tornadoes will behave. As difficult as it is to try to study these monsters, scientists do have ways. Two of the very basic pieces of information that scientists want to have about a tornado are its wind speed and wind strength. The instrument used to measure wind speed is called an anemometer. Well, the one that you see probably the most often is a, is a cup anemometer in which there's a, a little antenna that has a, a series of three cups that spin horizontally. This is a simple mechanical device that measures the wind speed based on how fast the cups rotate. Of course, there's limitations to it. It's a mechanical device, so it doesn't have a very quick response time. There are also sonic anemometers and light-based anemometers, and those overcome some of the challenges of the mechanical device, but they can only measure the wind speed within a very small area, and wind speeds can change very quickly over very short distances in a tornado. So what scientists would love to have is a way to measure wind speed at different locations in the tornado. So radar is actually a very frequently used technique to try to gather this information. It's the exact same technology that police officers use to clock the speed of your car. We have mobile radars that go out in the field uh, as part of research efforts that, can, that, that see tornadoes. And we see maybe 10 or 20 a year uh, with mobile radars. One of the real issues is that there are, there are networks of radars around the country that the National Weather Service operates that will see the thunderstorms of almost all tornadoes. But the problem is that the, the lowest beam of the radar uh, doesn't point at zero degrees. It points just slightly above the horizon because there are issues with with structures and trees that might be in the vicinity of the radar that make it to make it to where you really can't get good data right down at the, at the height of the radar, as well as the fact that the since the Earth curves, by the time you get oh, 30 miles away from the radar, that that lowest radar beam is well above the ground, where you actually aren't seeing what's going on right near the ground. And with the tornado, what we really care about is what's going on, you know, very close to the ground. So as you can see, it is very difficult to gather information about tornadoes using traditional scientific instruments. So instead of trying to study the tornado as it's happening, scientists have figured out ways to gather information about the tornado from the wreckage it leaves behind. Several years ago, there was a, a process in which a, a series of experts, wind engineers and meteorologists, attempted to estimate what kinds of winds would be necessary to cause various kinds of damage to different structures. Uh, and so based on this expert opinion, we have a, a set of winds that are associated with different kinds of damage so that if, you're, if your 
well-built home, your sort of your ordinary home that you might see uh, across the country, uh, loses its roof, we can make estimates about how strong the winds would have to be. If, if it loses walls, we have a different uh, wind speed. If, if all that's left within the uh, after the trail passes by is a small interior room, we have another set of, of wind speeds. And we do it for a variety of, of, of things. Uh, most of them are man-made structures, but their trees are also included in the list. And there's a total of 28 damage indicators. And for each one of those, there's a series of degrees of damage from no damage to light damage up to essentially completely destroyed and their wind speeds associated with each one of them. The challenge with this approach is then identifying reliable structures that were in the path of the tornado. There is another informal system of measuring the severity of a tornado. This was created by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and it's known as the Waffle House Index. Waffle House is a restaurant chain that is known for staying open through extreme weather. The restaurants also equip themselves with generators and backup cooling systems so they can reopen even when power systems fail. Thus, FEMA says it can judge the severity of a situation based on whether or not the local Waffle House is open. The random nature of tornadoes continues to make them difficult to study. But as always, science marches on, and Brooks says he's optimistic about the work that atmospheric scientists will do in the next decade. Well, all, all of the problems we have remaining are, are hard. Uh, I mean, I think it's important to note that essentially, you know, any scientists, what they, what they work on, um, in general, are actually the easy problems. Uh, you know, you work on the things that have, have, have quick, easy solutions, and then you, you move on to, to something new that, because you know the answer to the first question, now that's an easier question to, to answer. Uh, and so we tend to, move, we tend to move in that way. And so we make progress on all of these things uh, slowly but surely, and we have, hopefully have enough uh, bright people collecting observations and knowing how to interpret them that they'll, they'll find some of these problems easier than I do. Uh, so I think that over the... You know, over the next decade, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to improve in every one of those areas. Uh, that uh, uh, we've got we've got more data than we've ever had. We've got better ways to collect data when we're out in the field when when field projects occur. So I, I'm optimistic that you know, in say the next 10 years, we'll have we'll have narrowed our uncertainties down on all of those processes. You've been listening to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Central.